If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Tomorrow, the 12th of May, marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of one of the most significant figures in the history of medicine, Florence Nightingale. To mark the bicentenary, I spoke to Mark Bostrich, a biographer of Nightingale, about the life, legacy and wide-ranging achievements of the Lady with the Lamp. Could you start us off by giving a very quick rundown of some of the key events in Florence Nightingale's life? How did she become the Lady with the Lamp? Right. Well, she was born 200 years ago on May the 12th, 1820, um, in an area outside Florence known as Bellasguardo, because her parents were on a sort of European tour. Um, She came back to um, her father's estates in Derbyshire the following year. Um, The Nightingales were a a wealthy family. Uh, Florence Nightingale um, was uh, a second child. Her, Her elder sister, Um, had arrived in 1819, a year before her. But from a very early age, it was clear that it was Florence Nightingale who 
was remarkable for her uh, intellect. Um, her father ran his estates. He had been educated at Cambridge, but unusually for the time, he decided to um, school his daughters. Um, and he gave, in essence, Florence Nightingale, the kind of education in maths and in classics that she might have received um, at Cambridge. The problem, and, and the problem really throughout the first part of her life up to the Crimean War, was that she had this education, but because of her class and her sex, she couldn't really do anything with it because women of her time were required, as, as Florence Nightingale later wrote in an essay called Cassandra, to simply do needlework and embroidery and go out for carriage rides, so that by the end of the day they were exploding with all this energy and intellectual energy that they hadn't used. So in 1844, when Florence Nightingale was coming up to the age of 24, she decided um, that she wanted to become a nurse. Many years later, Florence Nightingale would describe herself as having had a call to service. Um, and by the 1840s, she decided that that call to service would be as a nurse. She hoped to train at Salisbury Hospital, but obviously... This was impossible for a woman from her background because nurses in those days were generally taken from the lower classes of society. And so then began a long, almost decade-long um, struggle between Florence Nightingale and her family for her to be allowed to nurse. Uh, and basically, um, this went on until, the, until 1850, when her parents gave in and allowed her to go to Germany very briefly and study um, nursing at Kaiserswerth, which was uh, a religious foundation of, of nurses. And she returned there the following year. Um, in 1853, she got her first proper job as superintendent of the um, Establishment for Distressed Gentlewomen in Harley Street. And then, of course, the following year, because of her friendship with Sidney Herbert, the Secretary of State at War, who she had met with his wife um, on travels in Rome in the 1840s, she was chosen, Florence Nightingale was chosen to lead a party of 38 nurses to Scutari uh, to look after the British soldiers who were being brought to the Barrack Hospital there um, because of the outcry in the British newspapers about the lack of care shown to British soldiers. I think we should probably delve a bit deeper into the Crimean War and everything that followed in a minute. You described the Nightingale's battle to become a nurse. She must have been incredibly determined to overcome those obstacles. What was it about nursing that she was so compelled to follow? It was the way she interpreted her idea of service to God. Also, she was a very well-read young woman and she, as the whole of her life shows, she was very good at getting information from a wide variety of sources from around the world. And she knew that nursing and hospitals were in a pretty dire state. And so she studied conditions in hospitals. When she got to go abroad, she studied conditions in hospitals in Paris and in Italy, compared them with conditions in Britain and began to devise a system that would be carried out, um, she, hope, she hoped, one day um, in a hospital designed by herself. You mentioned um, earlier that most of the nurses at this time were taken from the working classes. What was the state of the profession at the time that Nightingale joined it, and how was it seen by the public? Um, well, I, mean, I suppose the most famous representation of the nurse is Sari Gamp, 
in Charles Dickens' 1844, I think, novel, um, Martin Chuzzlewit, you know, a gin-soddled um, old woman um, living in a cage in a hospital, um, being let out to do various services for patients, not only ones of care, but even ones sexual ones. This was always a problem that nurses were thought to be um, of low repute, and some indeed were. Um, the great change in, in nursing in Britain was already happening because of the Protestant sisterhoods, the foundation of the Protestant sisterhoods. So a lot of Nightingale's later um, ideas about nursing were derived from the Protestant sisterhoods, which, again, as I said, she studied very closely, studied their practice. Um, so th that, was, that was very significant. It's all too easy to see Nightingale as single-mindedly bringing in an individual revolution in nursing. But, of course, things are never that clear-cut. I mean, she was undoubtedly extremely important, and without her, that revolution might not have taken off in the way it did in the 1860s. But nevertheless, it was a very slow process, and it was a process that would undoubtedly have happened eventually, even if she hadn't existed. What did that revolution look like? Well, I mean, perhaps it's best summed up by Nightingale's own best-selling work, Notes on Nursing, which was published in 1860, four years after she came back from the Crimean War. Notes on Nursing is directed towards nursing at home, but it does um, embody certain very key concepts. Um, some of them now seem very obvious to us, uh, one of which is the close observation of the patient, that you are basically putting the patient in as best a situation and condition as you can for nature then to act on him or her. Nightingale also explored um, different ideas about hospital wards. Um, because of her experience in the Crimean War, she wanted those wards to be sanitary, to have plenty of ventilation and plenty of natural light. She also wanted the matron, which is a very, who is a very important Nightingale invention, to be able to see all the patients um, at a glance. In other words, to be able to cast her eyes around this enormous ward and, and be able to see them and see what the, the, the junior nurses are doing. I mean, those are two of the most important new ideas that Nightingale would bring in. You mentioned that how her ideas about nursing were heavily influenced by her experiences of the Crimean War. When she arrived at the war, what did Nightingale find there? What were the conditions like? Well, basically, um, the Barrack Hospital, which was one of the hospitals, the largest hospital at Scutari, the base hospital, uh, was, it's an enormous building. I mean, you really have to see it to appreciate just how gigantic it is. Scutari was built over a sewer, so no matter what Nightingale and her nurses did, there was always going to be uh, this risk, very strong risk of infection. Um, Nightingale and her nurses did what they could. They, they cleaned, um, they put the soldiers in, in clean clothes. Um, also, Nightingale was acting as, as a purveyor to the British Army because they were so short, short of supplies. They didn't have beds. Um, they didn't have proper clothes, bandages. Uh, she had to go to the streets of Istanbul to buy beds, um, bedsteads in some cases. Um, but the really important 
thing to realise about the Crimean War, and this is where so many previous writers have gone wrong on Nightingale, is that Nightingale did what she could, but the really important change in the condition of soldiers uh, at Scutari was um, in the spring of 1855, so in other words, about six months, five months after Nightingale arrived there, when the British government sent out a sanitary commission to Scutari and they removed um, the dead horse in the, in, stuck in the sewers. They cleaned out the sewers. And from that point on, um, the death rate begins to fall dramatically. Now, Nightingale supported the sanitary commission. She was, after all, a sanitarian. Um, but the, the crucial thing to understand about Nightingale is that what she learned during the Crimean War through these sanitary disasters, as she called them, basically drove her work for the rest of her life. So after she returns to Britain in 1856, she basically works for the next half century in trying to ensure that the lessons of the Crimean War are are learned and put into practice. So you have hospitals that adhere to good sanitary principles. Do you think that's where people have perhaps misunderstood her contribution to the Crimean War, that it's not necessarily her greatest achievement, but more a jumping off point? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, it's so hard to overcome the Lady with the Lamp myth, this extraordinary burst of adoration that that came um, in the spring, summer of 1855, when that image of Nightingale holding her lamp in the ward at Scutari was published in the Illustrated London News. There was the most extraordinary outburst of interest and adoration. She was like, a, you know, in a sense, the first um, female icon for the Victorian age, um, after the Queen, of course. Um, her she, Songs were written about her, verses were written about her, her image, her a sort of fictitious image of her, usually making her look like the Virgin Mary or the Queen, appeared everywhere. Um, she was incredibly famous. And then, of course, she came back to England and she made the decision that as a woman, it was better to work from behind the scenes. Um, she also knew the power of that legend. She knew what she was able to do because of her name. So she could make government ministers do her will uh, by writing endless letters. Nobody wrote, left a sort of longer paper trail than Florence Nightingale. But the crucial thing about her is that despite being ill, because she had picked up an infection during the Crimean War, um, as a result of which she suffered from chronic brucellosis for much of the rest of her life, that despite being very ill, being depressed, suffering terrible spinal pain, she worked harder than any of us can imagine, in all sorts of areas, not only the establishment of of secular nursing, but also um, reforming the army medical services, which was vital so that um, soldiers never again in peacetime or in war suffered um, such terrible rates of mortality um, in camp or uh, in barracks at home. She was responsible for the design of hospitals. She published this book on, on nursing, on hospitals, she she worked did work to improve the situation of the peasant in India. Um, all this work was done from her bed because she was able to take statistical information, statistical returns, and analyze uh, the data, and then propose solutions on the basis of that. She had 
one of the great administrative minds of the 19th century. Do you think that that was the secret to her success, that um, administrative mind and her grasp of statistics? Yeah, I think that's the clue, really, to what makes her so extraordinary. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And then you compare it with today's waffle and jargon in, in literature produced by today's uh, Ministry of Health. She, she's very modern in that sense, but also in another way, she seems very distant because of the religious motivation that lies behind so much of what she did. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I was interested to read about some of the pioneering work that she did with statistics, um, which is a side of her life that I didn't know anything about. Can you explain a bit more about that? Well, I suppose... Um, She'd always been interested in statistics. Um, and one of the things I remember when I was writing my book, I, I found that this very famous statistician had visited um, Endley, her parents' home in Hampshire, when she was about 15. And he had been responsible for some of the design of the census. And she was always fascinated by statistics and said she'd much rather read a book of statistics than a novel. I mean, it was her idea of relaxation to sit down uh, and write statistics. I suppose the way into the subject is to look at the statistical work she did when she came back from the Crimean War, um, exposing the mortality rates of the British soldier during the war. Many more British soldiers had died from disease uh, at Scutari and in the Crimea than from battle wounds. And she exposed this by creating this brilliant visual diagram which is known as the Rose Diagram or the Coxcomb. 
because she wanted to present it in as an attractive a light as possible and communicate it to as large a number of people as possible, this terrible disaster, the destruction of the British army from disease. And she did that with this um, brilliant rose diagram. And then, of course, she went on to become the first uh, woman fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. And for the rest of her life, uh, right up to the time she's working um, on Indian affairs, where she's looking at the subject of irrigation and the problem that the lack of irrigation and the problem that poses for the Indian riot or pe- peasant, she's taking statistical material and analysing its data and then looking for solutions uh, that can be taken from it. Um, This might be a bit of a simplistic question, but she had so many different achievements in different fields. What do you think were some of her most significant? Well, two that are very different. One is her work from the 1860s onwards to really the end of her working life, so the 1890s. And that is her attempts to put trained nurses into the workhouses. Basically, before Nightingale's reforms, a sick pauper in a workhouse would be looked after by a healthy pauper. Nightingale made this extraordinary change of introducing trained nurses into into workhouses, not only in Britain, but in Ireland. And by doing so, she was making a very clear statement, which she reiterates in, in the pamphlet she wrote called The ABC of Workhouse Reform, in which she makes the ringing declaration of the importance of the idea that even if you have no money, you should still have a basic right to good health care. So one of the things that's often overlooked about Nightingale is the fact that she was a highly significant progenitor um, uh, of a national health service. The second very different thing, I think it shows up to the extent to which Nightingale was a polymath, is her famous essay written... um, during the years when she was a frustrated daughter living at home, called Cassandra, in which she looks at the limitations on her own life, on the lives of um, upper-middle-class women who are unable to work and have all this energy and aren't able to do anything. This, This pamphlet, which was published privately during Nightingale's lifetime, and then in the 1920s by Ray Strachey in her history of, of the suffrage movement, The Cause, to which it formed an appendix. This essay, Cassandra, um, was highly influential on J.S. Mill when he came to write his book um, about women. And then also had an influence on Virginia Woolf, who described it as, as being nothing less than like a scream, a scream of anguish and impotence and frustration and, and Wolf um, was highly influenced about it, um, especially uh, in A Room of One's Own, um, her own feminist text, which is, you know, is, is still read today. I think that's a side of stuff that, of her story that a lot of people aren't really aware of, which leads me on probably on to my next point, which is in the public imagination, Florence Nightingale has been crystallised as the lady in the lamp. A lot of the other aspects of her Um, story and her life have been subsumed by that image. Your book, the subtitle of it is The Woman and Her Legend. Why do you think her legend is so important? I suppose because it's so, it's so, I suppose because the legend 
is so powerful. It was powerful in the 1850s when it first um, came about. It's, it was powerful to my generation who read the Ladybird book about Florence Nightingale and thought this wonderful, compassionate lady going around um, hospital wards, wiping soldiers' brows. Um, it's such a strong legend that it, it seems in, in the past, uh, in the hundred years since Florence Nightingale's death, that the only way to overturn it is to go to the other extreme and make her a kind of symbol for everything that is wrong in nursing today, or indeed portray her as, as some someone in some way slightly devilish in the way that Lytton Strachey did in eminent Victorians uh, just after the First World War. What do you think people have got wrong in their mythologising about her then? Well, she's a very complex character. I mean, she really is very complex and difficult to understand. She is, as I said, a polymath. Like so many of those great Victorians, she ranged over classical languages, modern languages, uh, statistics, hospital construction, um, she could put her hand to so many things, and she was a brilliant letter writer, a brilliant essayist. I mean, you look at the the pungent phrasing of a book like Notes on Hospitals, for instance, uh, the way she just gets to the heart of a subject immediately, and then you compare it with today's waffle and jargon in literature produced by today's uh, Ministry of Health. You, you, she, she's very modern in that sense, but also in another way, she seems very distant because of the religious motivation that lies behind so much of what she did. You spoke about how she used her fame to her advantage, but also she famously hated being famous. How did it impact on her life in a negative way? Um, I think it was a struggle for her. I think, all of, like all of us, she liked attention when she felt that she had done something that was noteworthy and... Um, I think that was a real struggle for her to to give the praise back to God was her idea, not to take the praise for yourself and become inflated with your own self vanity. Um, she hated being photographed. She didn't like having her portrait painted. I mean, that said, there are quite a few photographs of her. And I remember when I worked at Claydon, which was her sister's home, uh, where Florence Nightingale spent a lot of time in the latter part of of her life. I came across so many drawings and, and watercolours of Nightingale painted by her sister. So yes, she, she didn't want what she called all the fuzz buzz around her name. She saw it as worthless. Um, and she was quite right to do so because she, she thought that the British public didn't really, wouldn't understand what she was doing. And she was right. Um, and she knew that it was better because of what had happened to her during the Crimean War, where that attention had sometimes um, worked to um, destroy her work rather than build it up. She'd had, had various problems um, because of newspapers and because of false reporting about her. So she knew that fame could work both ways. So I think sensibly, um, she realised it was impossible for a woman of her class to, to enter the public sphere in a very direct way. Of course, we're speaking now in lockdown. The temporary COVID-19 hospital in London is called The Nightingale. Why do you think her legacy is particularly resonant during our current crisis? As somebody sort of joked to me with grim irony today, um, of course, that Nightingale would have understood lockdown because she spent so many years basically living in a, in a room by herself, seeing hardly anybody. It's a very grim 
irony that this year of the nurse um, should have should have turned out this way, and that Nightingale's bicentenary should be overshadowed by the, this this terrible pandemic. Perhaps the only positive outcome to come out of this crisis is perhaps finally that the public might realise how important nurses are uh, to our society. Nightingale would be pleased because she fought for so many years to raise the status of of nurses uh, in this country and around the world. Um, And it's clearly something that the the, the government hasn't always appreciated, that we need more nurses um, and that nursing needs to be made more attractive as a profession. Um, she, what is interesting is that the, so much of the data analysis um, surrounding uh, COVID-19, um, the, quest, uh, the, the sort of um, statistics indicating the incidence of the disease, the statistics that will, will enable the government eventually to, to decide how the lockdown should be relaxed and eventually ended, that is a direct derivation, derives directly from Nightingale's own statistical work. I have often thought in the last few weeks um, how great it would have been to have Nightingale studying the material relating to COVID-19 and and what a brilliant analyst she would have been at that data. She would be observing the diseases um, spread very closely and and looking precisely at the moment um, when the lockdown could be relaxed. I've noticed on Twitter that Nightingale is getting acknowledgement for the for the simple principle she sets out in note, notes on nursing that washing hands is vital that this is essential to combat infection and as she says in notes on nursing if 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 you have time wash the nurse's face as well that's a sort of typical of her humor i think it's important to understand that even great figures like nightingale make mistakes and one mistake relating to hand washing is that she seems very oddly to have been ignorant um, of the work in the 1840s of Semmelweis uh, in Vienna, who established that hand washing was was important to combat the rise in mortality among women in maternity wards, because this was a, a terrible problem throughout the Victorian period, that really it was safer to have your baby at home rather than a hospital. And Nightingale oversaw um, the maternity ward at King's College Hospital in London in the 1860s. And that had to be closed because the maternal mortality rates were rising steadily. Um, What is very strange is that Nightingale didn't know about Semmelweis's research, which showed that doctors and medical assistants were going from autopsies into the maternity ward without washing their hands and transferring particles onto the women in labour who then died from purple fever. So that that is an interesting um, sideline about this hand-washing business. I'd also like to stress, because so many nurses at present are going through, so many nurses at present are showing such great courage on, on the battlefront, if you like, that Nightingale, in two instances that I can think of off the top of her head also put her life at risk in um, the autumn, late summer and autumn of 1854, not long before she went off to Scutari. She worked at Middlesex Hospital to care for patients who um, had been struck down by the cholera epidemic that was raging through London that killed, I think, about 600 citizens in, in 10 days. And she undressed patients in Middlesex Hospital, put the turpentine stoops on their stomachs 
and managed not to get infected, though she could easily have done so. So that is one instance of her bravery. And then, of course, uh, in the in um, Scutaria and in the Crimea, she's constantly um, in danger of, of becoming infected herself. I think she would, as we all are, be extremely proud that the nursing profession has risen to this challenge. Um, and unfortunately... A lot of nurses are obviously suffering infection and even death themselves. That was Mark Bostrich. His biography, Florence Nightingale, The Woman and Her Legend, is published by Penguin. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when I'll be speaking to Catherine Fletcher about the Italian Renaissance. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.